Welcome to Brett. Moses is one of the most famous, beloved, complicated, and fascinating characters in the Bible. God chooses him and uses him to do extraordinary and history-defining things. He's a flawed and broken person, but nevertheless a truly great leader. In this series, we draw on his example to learn what real leadership looks like in God's kingdom and how all of us, however we view ourselves, can grow not just in our leadership, but more importantly, in our faith and maturity as God's disciples. Welcome, uh, one and all. Well done on braving the apocalyptic storm. (laughs) My phone says, light rain forecasted. Light rain is expected to start in three minutes and last for 24 minutes. So well done, you made it. Um, I know it's supposed to get worse, but do stay safe. Um, It's good to have you all with us. Uh, We are, for those of you who are catching up, in a series on Exodus about the person of Moses. Uh, And really it's a series about leadership. What makes a great leader? What can we learn from in terms of leadership uh, from the life of Moses? And uh, I know that some people, as Hannah mentioned last week, some people would not see themselves necessarily as leaders, either uh, in terms of the capacity of things that they are doing right now, or even as their sort of personality. Uh, But as uh, she said last week, actually to be a Christian is in some way, for all of us, whoever calls themselves a Christian, to be a person of influence. And therefore, leadership is actually us, whether we like it or not, even if it's not sort of traditionally seen in the sort of upfront leadering roles. So the challenge is for all of us to grow in how we can be the person that God made us to be and influence this world, the people Uh, that God loves, uh, the people that are for him, the people that he has called to be his um, in God's presence and to draw them into more and more of what they were called to be. So we are all, in short, leaders. And we have moved on in the story of Moses. Uh, We are already into chapter 33. And in a moment, Adam is going to read the whole of chapter 33. Which is very exciting, isn't it? Um, But ideally, chapter 33 should not be disconnected from chapters 32 and 34. They sort of make up a coherent whole within the story. And in the preceding chapter, chapter 32, the Israelites have rebelled against God. Moses has gone up to Sinai. Uh, They know that without Moses, they don't really know what God's saying. And they are wondering whether God has departed from them. So they decide to um, make their own little idol, a golden calf to worship instead. This angers God and he threatens to destroy them. And then in chapter 3, which we will hear, it's about Moses mediating before God. Moses boldly pursuing God's presence, not just for himself, but all of God's people, asking him, pleading with him not to depart from them. And then chapter 34, the following chapter, God visits Moses. And Moses returns with God's law restored, his face shining with the glory of the Lord. And God is with his people once more, leading them out through the desert and on towards the promised land. So chapter 32, rebellion. Chapter 33, mediation. Chapter 34, restoration. And this this morning, as we continue to look at Moses, we are going to look at this process of mediation. How do we go from a place of having lost God's presence to regaining it again. And so without further ado, Adam, 
All right, Exodus uh, 33, the whole thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you've found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Uh, then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When the glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Uh, so, first, let us tackle a problematic point in the story. God's threat of violence. <laughs> Verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. 
Stiff-necked, I don't think is to be taken literally. It's not just because they have stiff necks. Stiff neck obviously means uh, proud, rebellious, unwavering in their desire to uh, walk away from God. One of the great challenges, though, for any Christian is resolving this tension that seems to exist between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. We know from Scripture that God does not change, do we not? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet, verses like this appear incongruous with the God revealed in Jesus, who rejects violence towards enemies and famously exposes the hypocrisy of the violence due to be meted out by the religious as they seek to stone a woman caught in adultery, a punishment, let's remember, entirely justified by the law that God gave Moses centuries earlier. And yet the New Testament, and Jesus in particular, never suggest any problems with continuity when it comes to how God has been depicted through the ages. And Jesus, in fact, warns against glossing over or making void the Old Testament scriptures in John 10.35. So, if we are going to follow Jesus in seeing all scripture as God's inspired word, we cannot pick and choose which passages we deem to be true simply because we prefer the depiction of God that we find in them. So, then, how are we to understand a God who is the God of grace? full of compassion for his people. And the God who here is in danger of destroying his chosen people because of their stiff-neckedness. Well, as we've said before, it's always vital to read the Old Testament in light of the new and not the other way around. Jesus, it is, who is the full depiction of what God is like. No one has seen God, says the uh, gospel writer John, but the one from the bosom of the Father, Jesus Christ, has made him known. So, all previous biblical revelations of God before Jesus are therefore in some way incomplete. Incomplete, but not incorrect. Our job is to interpret how God reveals himself incompletely before Jesus in light of how he reveals himself fully, completely, 100% in the person of Jesus. And so what we have then here in Exodus is God as he actually really is, but before Christ. And what God, what God, what God actually really is before Christ is unmediated. There is no interposition between perfect, holy, righteous God and the Israelites, humans who've rejected that true God, denying who he is and who they were made to be in his presence. They have become corrupted versions of themselves, as all humanity is. So when God says, verse 3, I will not go with you because I might destroy you, he is simply stating facts. How can something, i.e. him, perfect in every single way, abide something sinful? And so actually, I think the question for us as we read the Old Testament in this light is not so much how is it that people could be in danger of being destroyed by the presence of holy God, but rather how on earth is anyone not? In our passage, this reality is made really clear. Verse 20, you cannot see my face 
says God to Moses, for no one may see me and live. Such is the ardor of God in his unmediated holy perfection. There is a very real danger that anything, even the slightest bit lacking in perfect holiness, will be consumed. Given this, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Moses' refusal to lose the presence of God. He risks his very life for more of God. A point that we will come back to. But first, let's go back to these opening verses to see what is going on. God is not saying to his people, you blew it, I'm done with you. Rather, he is saying, even though you rejected me, even though you made your own God out of gold, even though you choose an idol to worship, even though you attribute to that idol your delivery from Egypt as opposed to me being the one who did it for you because I love you, because I care about you, because I did not want you to be enslaved, even though you have gone your own way over and over and over again, I nevertheless will keep my part of the bargain. Go up, verse 1, to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. And I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivitites, and Jebusites, all of them. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. I will be true to my promises, says God. I will protect you against your enemies, says God. I will bless you with a land of bounty, says God. But because you choose not to be with me, I'm saying, okay, so be it. I'll not go with you for fear that my perfection will consume you in your sinfulness. God is going to give to Moses and his people everything that they were promised. Land, protection, comfort, blessing, goodness, both milk and honey. All of it. Is it in not fact, sorry, is it not in fact wonderfully generous? But for Moses, and this is the great challenge to us, none of that means anything. Because everything means nothing for him without God's presence. Verse 15, Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. God's presence is of such vital importance to Moses that Moses will risk everything for more of it, and he won't move without it. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the challenge to us this morning. Have you lost God's presence? Have you become comfortable, maybe, with just a shallow experience of God's presence? Are you paddling around in the shallow end, or are you swimming deeply up and down in the depths of God's love and goodness? Because to be a leader in God's kingdom is to never, ever settle. To be a mature follower of God, like Moses, is to believe that there is always more. Jesus says this to his disciples, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, i.e. hunger and thirst for the things of God. For you will be blessed because you will be filled. 
Blessed are those, he says, who go after more, who salivate for it, who are desperate for it, because there is always more of God, and he it is who is uniquely able to satisfy the hungry and quench the thirst of those who desire more. So, can I ask you a question? This morning, how are you doing with God's presence? Would you like more? So, how do we get it? Firstly, admit it when we've lost it. There is an old uh, story of a young rebellious son. His mother has despaired of him. He will not do what he's told. He's disobedient at school. Nothing can get through to him, going after detention, after detention, after detention. Finally, she loses it and goes, right, I am taking you to the priest. She marches him to the priest, goes through the graveyard, up into the church, takes him to the priest, the tiny little priest who's 105 years old, looking stern and gray, pulls him into the office, sits him down on the chair, his legs swinging on the chair nervously. The priest says to him, boy, where is God? The boy swings his legs a little faster. The priest again, where is God? A tear begins to drop from the little boy's eyes. Finally, the priest rises himself to his full height of five foot four. Where is God? The boy can't take it anymore, jumps off the chair, runs out of the study, through the church, through the graveyard, out through the gates, into the arms of Granny, going, Granny, Granny, they've lost God down at the church, and they're trying to pin that on me as well. The sad thing is, churches lose God all the time. Churches can go for years and years without the reality of God's presence. We can experience God's blessings, wonderful buildings, beautiful finances, more and more people. We can have great popularity, exciting social events, courses and small groups and activities and outreach, and yet be completely and utterly separated from the presence of God. And the same is true of each of us on an individual level. This is not about whether your doctrine is correct. This is not about whether you're reading your Bible or you're praying. This is not about being a really good moral person or coming to church or volunteering your time. This is not about keeping your trousers on. This is about whether you have done the most important thing in the world, which is seek the presence of God. Because you can do all of those things and more and still be completely bereft of him. And so step one is to acknowledge that you've lost him. You may be doing everything right. And also you may be enjoying lots and lots of blessings, great community, wonderful friends, a sense of belonging, But if you don't have God, none of it really matters. Do you know um, one of the most common phrases that we hear um, after people have come here for the first time? I'm never coming back. No. (laughs) We never hear that. They just leave. 
Now, the most common refrain, I think, is something along the variation of, I, I arrived and there was something here that just made me feel at home. Or, I arrived and I knew that I'd missed this. And often it's not very tangible what it is. But in my understanding, what it is is not necessarily the songs that we sing or the sermons or the people. But what people are saying, I think, when they say that is, I've come home to Jesus, to the presence of God, and I remember him and I missed him. Often we don't know what we've got or what we've lost, rather, until we see it again and go, oh, that's refreshing. That's home. That's the God I was made for, and I have missed him. So first of all, have you lost out on God's presence? Step one, admit when you have. Step two, do whatever it takes to get it back. Verse four, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. This seems a bit strange, but there is significance. They mourn, and then they take off all their ornaments. Why? Well, because it's these ornaments, ornaments like these at least, that they had previously used to make their golden calf. Aaron the priest had gathered all their gold jewelry together, all their finery, melted it down, fabricated the idol from it, and then said, here, here's your God, let's worship it together. So what the Israelites do here, having come to this terrible realization that they have lost God's presence, is they do some aggressive surgery on themselves. They rid themselves of everything associated with their past sin. All that has inhibited their experience of the presence of God, that is going to get ripped out, torn up, and thrown on the trash heap. This is radical stuff. So can I ask you, what about you? What is it that is inhibiting you from more of God's presence? What is it that gets in the way? Is it a relationship? Your relationship to another person? Are they actually taking you further and further away from God's presence? Is it your relationship with a phone? That's my problem. We have screen time on our three kids thing. They're allowed two hours a day. 15 minutes on social media, no Snapchat, no TikTok. And so I monitor it. But when I monitor it on my phone, I see my screen time. <laughs> I'm just telling you this so you can keep me accountable. It's a real problem, I'm being honest, it's a real problem. I just, I pick up my phone, I don't know why I've picked it up, and I just think, I wonder what I could Google. And it turns out, anything. What gets in the way? Is it your relationship with your job? Is it your relationship with alcohol or other drugs? Is it your relationship with beauty, with money? 
Do you play computer games all the time? Get that PlayStation, throw it out of the window, and see it smash on the sidewalk, and be happy. You are now free. What is it? If you don't know what it is, ask a friend. Ask a spouse. Ask someone you know and love. They know what it is. They've been waiting for this day. <laughs> they can't wait to tell you. I have a list. If someone does ask you that, do it in love. Imagine how it would be to hear it for yourself. But be brave enough to ask if you don't know. But when you do know, only you can take the next step, which is to do some radical surgery. Without it, We'll be fine, won't we? We're going to heaven, God loves us. Nothing will change that. But without the deep, defining presence of God in your life, you will never actually feel particularly satisfied. You will be fine, but you will be incomplete. You will be okay, but not full. You'll be content, but not joyful. Happy, but not actually fully alive. Ultimately, it is his presence that you're made for, and without it, you will always feel somewhat bereft. So be brave, do radical surgery on the things that are stopping you. I encourage you not to be half-hearted. After all, was there anything half-hearted about Jesus Christ? In fact, in his particular disconcertingly graphic way, he says this, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's hyperbolic, obviously, but it gets to the heart of matters. He's not messing, so can I encourage us all, let's not mess around. Life is too short. There's fun to be had. There's God's presence to enjoy. Let's not just mess around on the periphery. Let's get fully involved. The Israelites take no prisoners. All their ornaments stripped off. They're cutting out the cancer every single cell. So do whatever it takes to get God's presence back by ridding yourself of anything that gets in the way. And secondly, by praying boldly. Now, commentators acknowledge that the depiction of God in this passage can be a little problematic. Firstly, God does not seem entirely in control of his actions. Verse 3. I might destroy you, he says. It appears like God is arbitrary, emotionally unstable even. And secondly, of course, he appears to change his mind. Moses convinces him to do the opposite of what he was going to do, with the result that verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, okay, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. How do we reconcile here the portrayal of God who appears unpredictable? with pictures elsewhere in Scripture, and with which maybe we are more comfortable, where he is steadfast and sure and never changing. 
Well, the depiction here of God in Exodus is not intended for us to seriously question whether God is in fact God-like at all. In fact, the whole story of God up until this point is God revealing himself as the true God, fully omnipresent and uh, uh, creator of everything, unlike all the other gods of surrounding nations, and one who is um, uh, so great that he can free his people from slavery. But rather... The depiction here is to, God, to show God with, of course, a, a big dollop of poetic license as no less true and no less important, but as God who is relatable. So we're not really being shown the inner psyche of God. That's not something that the Bible ever attempts to do. Rather, the writer's point is to bring us into Moses' perspective. We see God as Moses experiences him intimately, almost humanly. God is someone with whom he should and he can converse. Verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Ultimately, this depiction of God is therefore more to tell us about Moses than it is to tell us about God. Moses has grown up. Moses has learned God is not someone to keep your distance from. He is someone to come close to, someone to pursue, someone to go after, someone to reason with, someone to talk with as you would your closest friend. And so for us who now have Jesus, how much more? I began by explaining the problem of unmediated God in the Old Testament. But because of Jesus, this is a problem no more. As Timothy puts it, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus appears as perfect, holy, unmoving, wonderful God, awesome in his perfection. And yet he takes on flesh to identify with us to be one like us. And though sinless, Jesus takes on all the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin, Moses' sin, Israel's sin, all of it on himself, on the cross. And on the cross, he brings the two together, divinity and humanity. And on the cross, he kills it all, all of that which separates us from the love of God, all that separates us from the presence of God. He kills it in his body. It crushes him because all sin leads to death. And yet, because he is divine, death cannot hold him. And he rises gloriously from the grave. And he says, you are free. Go free because what I have done and enter into my father's rest. Enter into the presence of God. Yes, it is. Want a bit of Romans? Here's some Romans. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we, while we were God's enemies, were reconciled to him through his death of his son... How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 
Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus does what no other person could do, not what Moses could do, not what you could do, not what anyone else could do. Jesus uniquely able to do it, and what he does is he lets us, by his incredible gift of grace, have no fear about the holiness of God anymore. Moses risks everything for the presence of God. All you need to do is risk your pride. All you need to do is risk being humble enough to go, God, I've missed you. God, I'm here. God, would you meet me? Because what awaits for us when we do that is wonderful. Verse 19, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. What awaits us is quite simply this, God's goodness. There's actually a sort of virtuous circle to this, because it's not just that we pursue God for his goodness, but it's also that his goodness pursues us. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says this, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will never stop. I will never stop doing good to them. The psalmist writes this, surely your goodness will love and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We pursue God and his goodness, and God's goodness comes pursuing after us over and over again. As one writer puts it, and I um, happen to disagree nearly with everything that this writer says, but nevertheless, I like this. I'm not going to tell you who it is. God is like a highway patrolman who, pers who pursues us down the interstate with lights flashing and sirens blaring to get you to stop, not to give you a speeding ticket, but to give you something so good it could not wait until you got home. God chases us down, he pursues us to show us his goodness. And so to end, why do we need it? Well, as I've tried to show, we need it for ourselves. We will be bereft without it. But also, we need it for our world. Despite appearances, I was born after the Second World War. <laughs> I was born after Vietnam. And I was born after the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was also too young to experience most of the Cold War. So for most of my life, probably like most of you, things in the world have been relatively stable. Life has been good. I'm just not sure that's the case anymore. As we look out onto the world, the state of global politics, the global economy, as well as obviously all the things going on here back at home. I'm just not sure I have not, I've experienced a time of as much uncertainty, a time as much um, just fear from people.
the world's got some big problems. Much too big for any of us to solve. And I fear much too big for any government or any aid agency or any individual or company or university or think tank or non-profit or union or summit or congressional meeting to solve. Moses prays for God's presence not just for him, but for all his people. Verse 16, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? What distinguishes the church is nothing, nothing, not one thing. We are not better at anything than anything else. What distinguishes the church, God's people, the only thing that distinguishes God's people and the church is the presence of God. And God has chosen the church, his only rescue plan, the church, you, me, all the weirdos who go to other churches, that's who he's chosen to save the world. Because this is the power of the presence of God. All the problems in the world, totally unsolvable, unsolvable really. But we are desperate for the presence of God so that we might see some relief. So, to end, be honest. Have you lost God's presence? Are you swimming in the shallows? Do whatever it takes to get rid of anything that is getting in the way. Be brutal, do it. But have full confidence. Be completely bold in your desire to meet with the living God because he is coming after you. All you have to do is admit it. Admit that you need him. It's the only thing. And do it for your own sake. You will be a happier, more joyful, more loving, more wonderful person when you are in God's presence. Do you not find that? I've said this so many times before. After I pray, I'm a nice person. It's so weird. Before, not a nice person, pray, nice person. It's amazing. Aren't you better after you've worshipped for a bit? Aren't you? You are. You smile. You look terrible when you come in, and when you go out, you look wonderful. So do it for your own sake, but also do it for the sake of the world. Amen. Oh,